Okay, good morning, everybody. Filling in for Grant today. A long time ago when he asked me to do this, uh, he was going to see Emily. Well, that fell through, so I don't know what he's doing. We can make up all kinds of conspiracy theories about where he is. He's probably watching right now, so we can talk about him or say you know, he's not here, right, to defend himself. So, uh, and I'm just uh, let anybody who's visiting know I'm not the normal pastor who you would normally see here. Uh, Grant Combs is. I'm Michael Hare. I'm filling in. I'm a retired school teacher. So just to give you the heads up, some of my some of that may creep in uh, to today's lesson. And uh, retired from a local high school, who shall remain nameless, but go doors. And I'll try to keep this brief. Um, because I know there's something going on today, not quite sure what it is, but... Uh, so, you have the slide before you, the Lord is near. Uh, this is a note that is struck throughout the New Testament, consistently. The idea of God is near, the end is near. It's like they were in the end times 2,000 years ago. Um, Romans... 13, 11 through 12, for example, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. So as Paul is writing as if we're, we're in the end times right now. James 5, 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. John the days in which his people are living are the last hour. The time is near, says John in Revelation, and he hears the risen Christ testify, surely I am coming soon. Revelation 1.3 and chapter 22. So these uh, verses like this, for some people, present a problem. Uh, and they come up with different explanations. There are some people who say, well, they just made a mistake. They thought it was the end times, but they were wrong. Well, that's not really viable alternative for us here uh, who believe that the word of God, God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, which you're supposed to be memorizing, by the way, uh, and able to pierce to the dividing of soul and spirit uh, so that's not really a good option for us to think about, that they were mistaken. Uh, another one is that the end has come. This is sometimes called the, uh, the preterist view. They believe that the consummation of history was the coming of Jesus Christ. In him, time was invaded by eternity. In him, God entered into the human situation. In him, prophecies were all fulfilled. In him, the end has come. Paul speaks of himself and his people as those on whom the ends of the ages have come. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Peter, in his first sermon after the ascension of Christ, Acts chapter 2, his first sermon, speaks of Joel's prophecy, of the outpouring of the Spirit, and of all that should happen in the last days. 
and then says that at that very time, men were actually living in those last days. He said that 2,000 years ago. So that used to bug me when I first became a Christian. All these promises as if it were, uh, and, and still we're living in the world we live in. Well, another explanation, third one there, the infinity of God. If you think about God, he's infinite. That's one of his attributes. We are time-bound humans. We live one minute to the next. We have past, present, future. When God, you almost have to, it's hard for us to think, wrap our brains around this, but it's as if, uh, uh, well, there's got some verses up there, uh, or actually here. Uh, Psalm 94. The psalmist was literally like when he said that God, in God's sight, a thousand years were just as a watch in the night. So time, he's on a different timeline than we are. He's actually not on any timeline. Uh, or as Peter declares in 2 Peter 3.8, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. The fourth option, uh, and you can take, I believe, most of these, except for the first one. You know, if you want to buy the second one. But this fourth one is something that's undeniable. The Lord is near for each one of us. The most inescapable and personal truth that for each one of us, the end is near, as close as the next heartbeat. It's the simple fact. The one thing which can be said of every human is that they will die. For every one of us, the Lord is at hand. We cannot tell the day or the hour when we shall meet him. Therefore, all life is lived in the shadow of eternity. That may strike you as being a little morbid, but quite the opposite. It should actually be great joy, as we're going to see in the next verse in uh, Philippians. But Almost immediately, when, when uh, people have struggled with this notion, the terror of death, it brings about all kinds of anxiety, all kinds of neuroses. And uh, a man named Ernest Becker wrote a pretty famous book called um, The Denial of Death. And people deny death in different ways. They, 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 they're on a quest for immortality. Becker said this, the basic motivation for human behavior is our biological need to control our basic anxiety, to deny the terror of death. Human beings are naturally anxious because we are ultimately helpless and abandoned in a world where we are fated to die. This is the terror, to have emerged from nothing to have a name, consciousness of self, deep inner feelings, an excruciating inner yearning for life and self-expression 
And with all this yet to die. So this, we live with this terror of death. Grant talked about it last week in Hebrews. The terror of death. Uh, that God defeated the terror of death in Jesus. And so this terror of death has brought a many epic quests for immortality. One you see before you there. Building big monuments like the pyramids. Or go to China. And uh, emperor, the first emperor of China, Chen Wangdi, uh, founded the Qin Dynasty, believed that he was, uh, was hoping for immortality, so he built an entire army. That's just a small sample. There are thousands of them that he built, each one different. Or uh, the first story that many people believe this is the first story, the Epic of Gilgamesh. It was written on uh, tablets, clay tablets in cuneiform, and it's in uh, modern-day Iraq. Uh, that's where they found these. And it's considered to be by many to be the first story, sort of the oldest. Not We don't have to buy that as Christians and thinking about Genesis and all that, but uh, in this story, Gilgamesh uh, loses his best friend. His, the best friend's name is kind of funny-sounding, Inkydoo. But anyway, uh, he loses his friend, and he goes on a quest I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to die. So he goes on a quest for immortality. And he finds this man named Ushnapishtin, who tells him this story about a worldwide flood. And he survived it. And now he's immortal. And so it's a long story. I won't go into it all, but it's considered to be a quest for immortality. Or uh, look at Genesis 3, the story of original sin. Uh, the picture's hard to tell all the details, you know, but there's the serpent there tempting Adam and Eve. And what he said to them was that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to become like God. You're going to uh, become like God and you'll be immortal. And he, he died. That God told him, if you eat this, you're going to die. Uh, and the serpent said, you're not going to die. And in a sense, it was right. They didn't drop dead after eating the fruit. But uh, ultimately, they died. We all do. The death, the whole uh, death thing, end of the world in our own story. Or let's go to a more literary here. This person here looks like someone out of the Old Testament. It's actually Macbeth. Uh, I'm a Shakespeare fan. I used to be an English teacher back in the day. And <clears throat> it, this is Act 5. Macbeth has just received news of his wife's death, and he says this. And but before I do this quote, he, um, he uh, had achieved the pinnacle of power in Scotland uh, through very, a lot of murder and mayhem. But he got to the top, and he was promised by these three witches that he, would be, he could not be defeated by anyone born of woman. Or there's this forest. It has to, this forest has to move from here to here. Nobody, unless that happens, you're not going to be defeated. So he believed he was immortal. And then he gets news of his wife's death. And he says this, she should have died hereafter. There would be enough time for such a word. And then this gets to his philosophy of life. After receiving all that power, after thinking he's immortal, 
This is the way he thinks life is. And remember, he's under the sun. He's without Jesus, really. But this is what he believed. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player who struts and frets his hour on the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That's Macbeth at the end of his life. Those aren't exactly his last words. Uh, later on, he encounters Macduff, who he finds out was not a woman born. And his last words are, lay on Macduff. Uh, and it doesn't, he finds out the hard way that he is not immortal. Uh, so we're going to move to another literary example. Uh, two, Peter Pan, Natalie Babbitt. Peter Pan got to Neverland. He's never going to grow up. Doesn't have any of the, uh, that's something we all long for, a, a Neverland of childhood free of responsibility. And then uh, this book here, Tuck Everlasting, I just wanted to read a very, do a little read aloud here. Uh, this is Tuck Everlasting. It's by Natalie Babbitt. And it's about a family named the Tucks who actually do become immortal. Uh, they find the fount a fountain of youth by a tree, and uh, the whole family has drunk of this fountain of youth. It's a secret. Nobody else knows about it but them. Uh, and they've achieved immortality. And it's sort of like, uh, if you remember the Genesis story, I put the slide up there a while ago, if you remember that Genesis story, uh, God, when they got kicked out of paradise, uh, he put an angel, said, you, got, you can't go back in there. Uh, if you do, you might eat of the tree of life. And... Uh, this, is, this story imagines if they had done that. So this family becomes immortal. And so the father, Tuck, is in a boat on a lake, just like you see pictured there, uh, with this little girl named Winnie. And uh, he's a, they're, they're seeing this water from the lake go into a, going on its way to the ocean. And he says this. It goes on, Tuck repeated, to the ocean. But this rowboat now... It's stuck. If we didn't move it out ourselves, it would stay here forever, trying to get loose, but stuck. That's what us tucks are, Winnie. Stuck, so we can't move on. We ain't part of the wheel no more. Dropped off, Winnie, left behind. And everywhere around us, things is moving and growing and changing. You, for instance, a child now, but someday a woman. And after that, moving on to make room for the new children. Winnie blinked. She's about 10 or 11. Winnie blinked, and all at once her mind was drowned with understanding of what he was saying. For she, yes, even she, 
would go out of the world, willy-nilly someday, just go out, like the flame of a candle and no use protesting. It was a certainty. She would try very hard not to think of it. But sometimes, as now, it would be forced upon her. She raged against it, against it helpless and insulted, and blurted out at last, I don't want to die. There's the terror of death. No, said Tuck calmly, not now. Your time's not now, but dying's part of the wheel. Right there next to being born. You can't pick out the pieces you like and leave the rest. Being part of the whole thing, that's the blessing. But it's passing us by, us Tucks. Living's heavy work, but off to one side, the way we are, it's useless too. And that's sort of Macbeth's conclusion. Life under the sun without a savior signifies nothing. It's useless. It don't make sense. If I'd known how to climb back on the wheel, I'd do it in a minute. You can't have living without dying, so you can't call it living. What we got, we just are. We just be like rocks beside the road. Interesting passage in a kid's book. Uh, so the, uh, I was uh, going to read, refresh your memory last week, uh, Grant preached on um, Hebrews chapter 2, and it, echoed, it talks about this terror of death, verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives live, uh, who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So that's these characters I was just reading, Macbeth, uh, Winnie, their fear of death. And maybe you sometimes have this anxiety about this. So how should we, oh, we, we've got some uh, famous last words here. These are some historical figures who had some kind of ironic last words. This is uh, General John Sedgwick. He was a Union general in the Civil War. And uh, he survived three, he was wounded three times at Antietam. Well, it was at the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse that he made this final ironic statement. They couldn't hit an elephant at this dis... That was it. He got hit by a sniper. Uh, so he was confronted very ironically with his own mortality when he least expected it. Or, uh, this is Black History Month, February, so I have one, a slide here about Dr. King, famed civil rights leader, Nobel Prize winner, had this last, to say in a last prophetic speech, he, he kind of had an inkling what was going to happen to him the next day. He was shot down after he said this thing. I've seen the promised land. And I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get there to the promised land. I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. Mine eyes have seen the coming of the Lord. Next day he was killed. Ah, uh, and then, a lot of you know this next person, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. 
And I don't know if you know how Bonhoeffer, but he was implicated in a plot to kill Hitler. Arrested, put in a concentration camp. I'll have some other, these are probably not his last words, but I have some other ones that may be uh, later that I'll share with you. So now, the Lord indeed is near. How should we live? How should we live? Some people would suggest like this cartoon does. I know that caption is unreadable for you, but this is a man who's talking to his doctor and the doctor has just given him a a terminal diagnosis. And the doctor says, my advice to you is to eat, drink, and be merry. So that's one way with this, this confrontation with our immortality. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's the Epicurean or hedonistic view. And Jesus uses that in a parable, if you remember. This guy sold his barn and said, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow I'm going to die. And then he said, you fool. What's the, what does he say? Tonight, your soul, you're, gonna, you're going tonight. So you don't know about tomorrow. So let's consider Philippians 4, 4 through 8. How should we live? Number one, four things. The Lord, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. The Lord is near. Rejoice in the Lord always. Um, It's as if Paul was looking down, uh, he was lying in prison, Paul. He's lying in prison when he wrote this. He doesn't know if he's going to make it through the next day. They might say, okay, time for the cross. Uh, or whatever, stoning or whatever execution. He himself was lying in prison with almost certain death awaiting him. The Philippians were setting out on the Christian way and the dark days, dangers, and persecutions inevitably lay ahead. So Paul says, I know what I'm saying. I thought of everything that can possibly happen. And still I say, rejoice. Christian joy is independent of all things on earth because it has its source in the continual presence of Christ who has defeated death. Paul says elsewhere, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Uh, This is Valentine's week, so uh, two lovers Always, are always happy when they are together. No matter where they are, the Christian can never lose his joy because he has Christ in his heart always. And I think of uh, this topic of joy, I think of the uh, many blessed uh, passages, like the Beatitudes. Uh, that's about joy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the the, uh, pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And finally, he makes it personal. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil because of me. 
Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So joy, the first thing. Uh, this is all homework, by the way. So first thing on your homework tonight is rejoice. The Lord is near. Okay, secondly, second item of homework is uh, the Lord is near. Let your gentleness be evident to all. This is an interesting word, epiakia, gentleness. It's not real easy to translate uh, as evidenced by the many different versions. Uh, King James, moderation, reasonableness. You heard Fenton read reasonableness. Let your reasonableness be heaven to all. That's the ESV. Graciousness, kindness, some say mercy. It's a difficult word to translate. Uh, so, um, and the Greeks themselves explained this word as justice and something better than justice. They said that epiakia, this word here, ought to come in when strict justice becomes unjust. That's something to think about. Strict justice can become unjust. Uh, for example, you're speed, you see a, a policeman sees a car speeding down the road and pulls him over. And why are you speeding? My wife's about to have a baby. We're on the way to the hospital. He said, I'm sorry, I got to write you a ticket. You know, you, you, you broke the law, the letter of the law. 99.9% of police would say, okay, follow me. Bam. Uh, so that's what, that's epiakia. Sometimes you have to set aside the letter of the law. You know, sometimes, uh, or another example is uh, another Shakespeare play. I'm going to throw a little more Shakespeare at you. This is the uh, Merchant of Venice, one of my favorite plays. It's a, it's a great play. And this is the, the critical scene. You have all the characters here. You have in the middle, in that red robe, that's Portia disguised as a doctor of the law. And she's going to render judgment. And you have Shylock holding with a knife in one hand and a scale in the other. Does anybody know what he's after? He's after a pound of flesh. The flesh he wants is the other guy, uh, the guy with the beard, kind of a goatee. That's Antonio. He's the merchant of Venice. He borrowed money from Shylock. And Shylock said, I don't want to get paid back with money. I want, if you can't pay, I want a pound of your flesh. Because he's been persecuted. He's Jewish. He's been persecuted and mocked in the Rialto. He says, I want a pound of your flesh. If you can't pay, well, it turns out he couldn't pay. So now it's time for the pound of flesh. He's sharpening his knife. And Portia has to decide. She's the one who decides what's going to happen. And she gives this speech. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth from the heavens as the gentle rain upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty. 
wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings, but mercy, epiakia, mercy, is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show like God's when mercy seasons justice. That's epiakia. Mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Shylock, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. That's so true. In the course of justice, nobody in this room would see salvation. And what makes God just and welcome into his kingdom is Jesus. That, that axe had to fall, and it fell on Jesus. But because of that, we can all have mercy. Otherwise, this line is very true. In the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy. And that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. So that's what God's getting at, or what Paul is getting at when he says, let your gentleness, your epiakia, be evident to all. Or you can think of the story, the next story. Uh, this is that famous story from the Gospel of John. You, you, you know, it's uh, chapter 7 at the end. This is actually a passage that gets left out of some editions of the uh, earlier editions of the Bible, but I like it. I think it's true nonetheless. So I, I, uh, it's a great story. You've got the three main uh, features of the, the, the people in the background. That's the uh, Pharisees that have dragged this woman, thrown her at Jesus' feet and said, she's committed adultery. She deserves to die. So Jesus doesn't say a word. He stoops down and starts writing with his finger. And John is very careful to point out that it's with his finger he's writing in the dirt. And here's why I think he did. That little detail is significant. If you think back to when the law was given in the book of Exodus, it was written with the finger of God on tablets of stone. So they never says what he was writing in the dirt, but I believe he started writing the Ten Commandments with his finger, just like the Ten Commandments were written in stone. I think he started writing the Ten Commandments. And when he got to the Seventh Commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. I believe he's, that's when he stood up and said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. That's epiakia. And then uh, they all left. He said, oh, he's got us there. They all went. And he says to the woman, where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? And she said, they've left. I said, and then he says, well, I'm, I'm not going to accuse you. Go thou and sin no more. That's epi-echia. Let your gentleness be evident to all. So the Lord is near. We need to rejoice. We need to let our gentleness be evident to all. And next, thirdly, is prayer. So do not be anxious about anything. Uh, do not be anxious. So I put a I'm a, a fan of New Yorker cartoons. Uh, this is a New Yorker cartoon. And the caption's hard to read there, but you can see uh, 
They're in heaven and two angels. And the caption says, for goodness sake, rest in peace. Uh, so that might be some of us that we're anxious a lot. We're nervous. We worry a lot. We're worriers. And that could be for a number of reasons. Uh, the fear of death we've talked about earlier that causes anxiety, but it's all kinds of things. Uh, the, the, you know, your news feed, all kinds of things can make us anxious. Uh, so uh, the next cartoon here gets to the point of why. That's another cartoon here. And it, it's the principle of the gaze and the glance I talk about. Where's your gaze? Where's your glance? So you have uh, most of the characters are on a plane. They're looking down at the earth. They've got their gaze down at the earth, except for one. He's got his gaze on God. He's got his eyes fixed on God, the gaze and the glance. Uh, so Peter experienced this when he was uh, Jesus. He was out in that boat in the storm and uh, says, why don't you come out and join me, Jesus says. So he does. He gets out of the boat. And as long as he gazed at Jesus and glanced at the waves, he was fine. He could tread on the water. But the minute he started gazing at the waves and glancing at Jesus, down he went. You know, so, so it's this, the principle of the gaze and the glance. So let's talk about peace, the peace of believing prayer. Um, for the Philippians, life was bound to be a worrying thing. He tells them, do not be anxious about anything. Even to be a human being is to be vulnerable to all the chances and the changes of this mortal life is in itself a worrying thing. And in the early church, to the normal worry of the human situation, there was added the worry of being a Christian, which could be a capital crime. Thrown, thrown, be thrown to the lions uh, back then. Uh, taking your life in your own hands when you became a Christian, when he wrote that, this uh, letter. So Paul's solution is prayer. M.R. Vincent puts it this way, peace is the fruit of believing prayer. And in this, he has the brief compass of uh, theology of prayer. We can take everything to God in prayer. Remember the old hymn, uh, this great old hymn, we don't sing it too much anymore. <clears throat> what a friend we have in Jesus. All our griefs, sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials or temptations? Yes, we do. Is there trouble Everywhere, anywhere, yeah. We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. So that's what he says. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petitions, Present your request to God. But it's got to be accompanied with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving must be the universal accompaniment of prayer. 
uh, gratitude. Gratitude is very important to Paul. In, in Thessalonians chapter, the first Thessalonians chapter five, he says, "In everything give thanks. Everything give thanks." And right after that, he says, "Quench not the spirit." Interesting juxtaposition of verses. So the way I link those two notions is, ingratitude quenches the spirit. Ingratitude, it, does, it works on a human level, that's true, isn't it? We take each other for granted. Uh, it quenches our spirit. And uh, so this idea of being thankful uh, always. Uh, the Christian must feel, as it has been put, that all his life is, as it were, suspended between past and present blessings. We have so much to be thankful for. Every prayer must surely include thanks for the great privilege of prayer itself. Paul insists that we must give thanks in everything, in sorrows and joys alike. That implies two things. It implies gratitude and also perfect submission to the will of God. So, uh, next slide, three things about prayer. Um, when we pray, we must remember these three things. The love of God, when we're praying. We must remember the love of God, which ever desires only what is best for us. The love of God. We must remember the wisdom of God, which alone knows what is best for us. And we must remember the power of God, which alone can bring to pass that which is best for us. Who, he who prays with a perfect trust in the love, wisdom, and power of God will find God's peace. And it passes understanding, according to the verse. So what is the result of believing prayer? It's peace. We all long for peace. William Butler Yeats longed for it in his famous poem, The Lake. He, wanted, he longed for it in the deep. I shall find some peace there. Where peace comes dropping slow. Uh, peace is something we all long for, so this peace of God. Paul writes about uh, elsewhere, Romans chapter 5, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. That's prayer. We have access by faith. So this understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is something Bonhoeffer experienced while he was waiting to be executed in a, in a concentration camp in Germany. His last letter, we don't really know what his last words were because it's got a little bit of a mystery what exactly happened at the end. Some of you may know better than I do if you've read a biography, but his last letter, we do know this. It's very interesting. He's writing to a friend of his, and he says, um, therefore, I have not felt lonely. And he's in this Nazi prison. Therefore, I have not felt lonely or abandoned for one moment. You, my, best, my friend, my parents, all of you, your friends and students of mine are at the front, all are constantly present to me. Your prayers and good thoughts, words from the Bible, discussions long past, 
pieces of music and books. All these gain life and reality as never before. It is a great invisible sphere in which one lives and in whose reality there is no doubt. It says in the old, he, then he flashes back to when he, his childhood, an old children's song. It says in the old children's song about angels, two to cover me, two to wake me. So is this guardianship, the peace of God which guards our hearts and minds, this guardianship by good invisible powers, God himself, it's going to guard your heart. Uh, in the morning and at night, something which grown-ups need today no less than children. Therefore, you must not think that I am unhappy. What is happiness and unhappiness? It depends on, so little on the circumstances. It depends really on what happens inside a person. And that's if Jesus is dwelling in your heart. You can be happy anywhere. You could be happy waiting for a firing squad in a Nazi concentration camp like Bonhoeffer. Uh, so, last thing here is, has to do with the mind. The fourth bit of homework. So we have rejoice in the Lord always. We have let your gentleness be evident to all. Pray. Uh, do not be anxious. Pray. And fourthly, we have... Uh, Next slide, please. Sorry, I was gonna. The plan was to me to do this myself, but we couldn't. We couldn't make that work. So, more Shakespeare for you. Is the fourth thing, the true countries of the mind. Philippians four eight through nine. This is what Fenton read earlier. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right. Uh, this is Henry V. Uh, just a little bit of background. He's about to fight a battle. Uh, talk about the Lord being near. He's facing an army, a French army. They've just done a long journey across France, trying to reclaim some ancestral lands. And they're facing the French. They're outnumbered five to one. They're way outnumbered. And so his, his, uh, his army is afraid. They know most of them are not going to be going back home. So he gives this speech. Uh, it's called the St. Crispin's Day speech. And I was going to play a clip of, if you ever get a chance, go on YouTube and Google St. Crispin's Day speech and listen to this guy, Kenneth Branagh. Uh, it's fantastic if you ever get a, a chance to see it. But the St. Crispin's Day speech, it says um, this. It, it's a Crispin, Crispian was a saint. And he says this, Crispin, Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition, and gentlemen in England, now in bed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap while any speaks that thought with us upon St. Crispin's day. So he gives this speech. Everybody's cheering. His army is all energized. 
we don't care. We're outnumbered five to one. We're going to go take, we're going to go take them. But one guy comes, uh, Salisbury comes and says this. This is getting to the quote I want to get to. Uh, My sovereign Lord, bestow yourself with speed. The French are bravely in their battle set. And with all expedience, charge on us. They're charging. And then here's what he says. All things are ready if our minds be so. I won't tell you that. I don't want to spoil the ending for you, how the battle goes. It's a famous battle, the Battle of Agincourt. And, uh, but all things are ready if our minds be so. So um, let's go to the next one. So here's the uh, thing. The Lord is near. Paul, our thinking is very important. He said this over and over again. Romans chapter 12, Therefore, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies a living sacrifice, uh, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable surface. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the Lord is near. Think about whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy. Think about the true, the love of God. There's so many great truths to think about that is shed abroad in our hearts. Think about the noble, the honorable. Uh, it's the uh, notion that uh, it's the Greek word simnos. Another word difficult to translate, but the word really describes that which has the dignity of holiness upon it. The honorable, the right, um, and the pure, the lovely, the admiral, the pure. I think of the beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Uh, the lovely, the admirable. Then if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. That word excellent, I, I did want to pause a little bit on that one. Um, that's the Greek word erete. Arete, I'm never quite sure how to pronounce it. Alpha, Rho, Epsilon, Tau, Eta, or A-R-E-T-A. So, Arete, it's excellence. It was a common word in the classical world. They used it all the time. It stood for all kinds of excellence. Uh, Paul, but he seemed to deliberately avoid that word. This is about the only time he uses it in this list right here. But it was a common word in the classical world. Uh, To deliberately avoid it. Uh, So in classical thought, it described every kind of excellence. It could describe the excellence of the ground in a field, the excellence of a tool for its purpose, the excellence of an animal, the excellence of the courage of a soldier, the virtue of a man, the, the Latin, the Romans would take and change, use the word virtue. And the founding fathers, uh, by the way, uh, when, they, when they were sitting in Philadelphia creating our government, that government, the notion of a three-part government didn't come out of thin air. I don't know if you knew that, but they got those ideas from somewhere else. Some of it were states were already doing uh, executive, judicial, they were already doing it. Massachusetts had a three-branch government. But they really got the idea from France, a man named Montesquieu. 
he wrote uh, a book called The Spirit of the Laws. And it's, it, he, he suggested this idea of a three-part government. But he said uh, there are three types of government. One is a monarchy. And in a monarchy, you want to cultivate the uh, idea of um, honor, chivalry, honor. You also have tyranny. In a tyranny, you want to cultivate the aspect of fear. Tyranny is governed by fear. Thirdly, it's a republic. And in a republic, and this is what the founding fathers had in mind, they talk about a republic, you need to cultivate virtue. It's the Greek word arete, excellent. Virtue. So we should all be citizens, uh, virtuous citizens. And Socrates said to know the good, same word, excellent. To know the excellent is to do the excellent. So that's your homework. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there is any excellence or praiseworthy, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Your mind matters. So that is how we should live in the light of uh, mortality, our own mortality, and should the Lord tarry. Uh, you know, so the Lord is near, live lives of joy. Remember, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. People put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. So let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Amen.